Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, joined today by Kathy Fecky. Kathy, how are you? I'm great. Happy to be here with you. Had such a great time in Denver last week with uh, all the... All the other hosts at the host retreat. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. If you uh, all were following along on social media, Bigger Pockets had the hosts of all five of our podcasts uh, together in Denver for a couple of days for some team bonding, some learning, um, and we all had a very good time. It was great to see you. Some improv, uh, improv yeah, we dancing. did improv <laughs> class, which Kaylin, our producer, suggested. We did some weird stuff. There was mew- mooing. We were clucking like chickens. <laughs> it was a good time, though. It was. But today we have, I think, one of our mutually favorite guests ever, Logan Motoshami on. We all love, we love all of our guests, but Logan, I don't know, I think of him as like an analyst's analyst. It's like who all the housing market analysts look up to because he's just like been doing this type of work, trying to forecast the housing market for so long and has been so right about it for so long. He's someone I think everyone should really be following very closely. And and this is going to be a show that you'll want to listen to several times. Don't feel bad if you have no idea what he's talking about. But the more that you listen and slow it down, repeat, the more it will make sense. And it really is so important whether you're trying to flip homes or or rent homes or buy a home or wh- whatever you're trying to do. It's just really important to understand the underlying factors that might affect that investment. Absolutely. Yeah, there there are some advanced topics here, not really about the housing, like the housing market stuff he's talking about, I think is pretty straightforward. He talks a lot about bond yields and credit. Uh, we talk about and try and explain on the show. Uh, but just so you know, you can follow Logan's work. He has a lot of written work if you want to learn more about what he's talking about on Housing Wire. Um, a lot of people ask me how I got into housing market analysis. And one of the people I've looked up to and read and to sort of like get my start was Logan Motoshami. So definitely recommend checking out his work. He he posts a lot of it. He's great on Twitter too. So if you want to learn more about the themes that he's talking about, you should definitely follow him on some other channels as well. Yeah, because no matter where you go, you're going to get somebody's opinion on the economy and that might affect what you do and it might be the wrong advice. So again, to me, listening to this and really understanding the fundamentals of the housing market is going to put you ahead of everybody because it's the 80-20 rule, right? The masses are usually going in the wrong direction when it comes to investing. So don't don't follow the masses. Listen to the experts. Absolutely. Yeah, totally agree. It's worth spending the time to really understand these issues like inventory, bond yields, the labor market. There's so many things that impact housing. It's hard to be, it's kind of hard to focus, but Logan does a very good job narrowing it down to a couple key indicators that you should be paying attention to. With that, we're gonna get into it, but first we're gonna be taking a quick break and then we will welcome on the Housing Wire lead analyst, Logan Motoshami. Logan Motoshami, welcome back to On The Market. Thanks for joining us again. It is great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I know Kathy and I have a lot of specific questions for you, but would love to just 
get your take on what's happening in the housing market just in the beginning of 2023. We've seen a lot of sort of whiplash data, contradictory information, and would appreciate your summary of what's happening. You know, so for one of the things we do here at Housing Wire now, um, we uh, acquired Altos Research, which has the weekly tracking of inventory that comes earlier than anyone else. And um, with my work on the bond market and purchase application data, we've incorporated a, a tracker to look forward for all housing data, and we give that weekly. And back on November 9th, that data line became positive. So November, December, and January until uh, February, the forward-looking housing data was getting better in terms of purchase application data was getting better. The bond market was heading lower. Um, and what was happening also on the inventory side, inventory is falling like it usually does in the uh, uh, fall and winter. But we have this strange phenomenon uh, post-2020 where inventory in America actually bottoms out later in the year. Uh, the weekly inventory pre-COVID used to just bottom out in January and rise. February, March goes into the spring. But we've had three different events where we have late, late in the year demand pick up abnormally. The 2020 COVID-19 recovery, the, the makeup demand. In 2021, we had a very odd um, purchase application volume surge that never happens toward the end of the year. And then last year, uh, we had a little bit of a surge in purchase application data from a waterfall dive. And what's occurred is that early on, you hear these um, talking points of bidding wars again. Uh, and the reality is inventory almost got back to all-time lows again, uh, uh, even with the biggest collapse in sales in for, for a calendar year that we've seen in modern-day history. So it's a weird housing market because people have always been trained that if demand falls, supply should increase. If demand collapses, supply should increase significantly, except the housing market is different because a traditional seller is traditionally a buyer of a home as well. So uh, homeowners have been staying in their homes longer and longer um, from 1985 to 2007, to seven years from 2008 to 2023, 11, 13, in some cases, 15 to 18 years. So they didn't really need to move as much anyway. And then when rates spiked up, what we saw after uh, June of last year was that new listings data started to go negative. And every week it started to go negative earlier and faster than what we traditionally see, which means people just said, uh, there's, I'm not moving. Um, and even when rates were falling from 7.37% to 5.99%, we didn't see any new listings uh, uh, growth to, to uh, accommodate that uh, decline in rates. So we have very low inventory. We have affordability issues still. And it's just a very confusing housing market when you look at it in that light. Uh, um, and we were finding some stabilization when mortgage rates got to 5.99% that moved down. But within just a few weeks, rates shot back up to it's probably uh, about 7% today. Uh, and that just takes everything that was gained in that you know three months from November to the first week of February uh, and it just pulls it back. And now we see purchase application data itself is down to 1995 levels. I'm curious how much the data is skewed by the number of homes on the market. So I remember back in 2009, most of the homes that were on the market were foreclosures and short sales. So that obviously affected the, the median price. Are we seeing that today with such low inventory that, you know, what is selling and is that affecting values? There is literally no distressed sales. Uh, it's like 1% of, of, of the market right now. So the people that are selling their homes, um, before rates fell, uh, the pricing was getting weaker. They had to cut their prices to move product. Uh, the days on the market are, are still historically low, but we finally, the last existing home sales report, finally got back to over 30 days. 30 days is normal. What happened... Um, during COVID is that days on market got below uh, 20 days. And I always had the same. There's nothing good happening in housing with days on market as a teenager. That means either you have a massive credit boom and homes are just flying off the shelves, or you have so few homes that too many people are just chasing that few and then they, they just get off the market faster. 
we didn't have like a massive credit sales boom like we saw from 2002 to 2005. We just didn't have uh, much product out there. So too many people chasing too few homes. But when rates go from 3 to 7%, with all the home price gains that we've had, the affordability issue gets more and more. So, the, so coming off of that extreme pricing, especially early on in 2022, January, February, and March of 2022, for me, just personally, that was like the worst housing market because we were getting 50, 60, 70 people to bid to a home. And home prices were accelerating to the point that we would have had at least 23 to 27% home price growth uh, last year if rates didn't rise. So now as affordability becomes more of an issue, the homes that are available out there that are selling, uh, they're not getting the prices that we you would have had with the sub 4% housing market. Outside of that, there's still not that much active uh, inventory out there. And that, I think, is the confusing part because people say, well, why is it inventory rising? So you just have to think like a homeowner, right? A traditional seller is a traditional buyer. So if affordability is an issue, then that seller is a net demand hit uh, because they can't afford that next house. So they don't need to move. Their total payment levels are so historically low that uh, you get hit on the move up buyer, move down buyer, uh, the investor, the first time home buyer, you put them all together, you've had the biggest collapse in sales in a one year time frame uh, in history because the market just simply just froze in terms of the traditional buyer demand, all of them coming in together. Uh, and that's what happens when you get rates move. I mean, it's one thing if rates move a quarter to half a percent, that's like a, you traditionally, that would be like a big move on someone. We're talking a 4% plus move in mortgage rates in one year. So it's a shock to the system. But even with all that, we did see stabilization in the data because we're working from a very low bar. Like historically, it's really rare post-1996 to have existing home sales go below 4 million. So we had the demand slightly pick up. Pending home sales were up. New home sales were up. Existing home sales are going to be up. But then rates spiked up uh, a 1% again. So the market can't stabilize when rates are moving up and down like this uh because what happens is that person looking to list their homes goes you know what i i, I i'm just not sure and that's that's the one data line that you know last year that really caught my attention was once rates got above six percent the new listings data starts to decline earlier and faster and negative and we're not even talking to hard cop either talking the lowest cop ever in history and we still couldn't even get positive so uh that's that's a problem for demand but again that's also keeping the inventory at bay so you're you're mentioning that as rates go up new listings are going down and that's suppressing inventory can you explain that a little bit more i'd like to dig into your thoughts on why it is that we're not seeing more new listings in the market right now so I used to not believe in the mortgage rate lockdown premise. Uh, I used to even write about it, how I never believed it. But last year I was open to the idea of it because the, I need to see three things happen for me to even start a discussion. First of all, mortgage rates got to get to all time lows. That's what happened. Checked. A lot of people refinance. Second of all, mortgage rates have to rise in a big fashion. I'm not talking like 1% or 1.5%, two and a half to four and a half percent. We've never had that in recent history. So that was checked that happened and then three it has to happen in a year where prices are still rising it's not like prices declined uh, uh nationally uh, in 2022 so so you have a big affordability hit but then i thought to myself now i realize why i hated the mortgage rate lockdown premise um there's a bigger story here and for me it's the credit channels uh after the 2005 bankruptcy reform laws and the 2010 qm mortgage laws once those laws were enacted, what you have is a straight 30-year long-term fixed product. Other countries don't have this as much as we do, right? Like Canada, Norway, so it's all these countries are tied to short-term debt. We have a fixed product. When somebody buys that house, every year, their wages keep on increasing more and more every single year. So people are living in their homes longer and longer. Then we've had three refinancing ways, 2012, 2016, and then 2020, 2021. So their total housing cost is very low, but their total housing cost was low for a long time, right? Because there's no more, you know, 
short-term arm products that recast or anything. So there's there's not a reason to, in a sense, list your home unless you had to move. So when rates spiked up, it became an affordability issue. So a, a traditional seller would just say, okay, I'm listing my house now and I know that mortgage rates are at 7% and I could still buy that house. So I'm fine because I have enough selling equity, whatever it is, I'm going to be okay. But outside of that, there's literally no reason for people to list their homes because the data has shown this before COVID. So the best example I say is that 5% mortgage rates in 2018 did not create any inventory. Like the total inventory data was not rising that year. But also sub 4% mortgage rates in 2019 didn't create more inventory either. There's this natural equilibrium between supply and demand. You list your homes and then you typically could sell that. And if you look back in uh, inventory data from 1982 to uh, 2023, historically, we would have two to two and a half million active listings. The only time in history that we've had uh, uh, inventory skyrocket in a very short time was 2006 to 2011. That was, in a sense, forced credit sellers that could not buy a house. So in a sense, they were selling to be homeless or selling to rent. Uh, uh, and outside of that, a traditional seller is a traditional buyer. It keeps the inventory channels at bay. Now, inventory for many years was slowly falling, slowly falling, slowly falling, and then got to all-time lows right in our biggest demographic patch ever, which is the worst timing ever, but it did. Prices escalated out of control, but people that could sell their homes have a lot of equity move. Mortgage payments are fine for them. Everyone else, not really looking to sell anyway, and with rates higher, that affordability keeps the other group at bay. So that to me explains why new listing data for a good example is we, we've got the new listings weekly data. We update that every week at Housing Wire. And uh, this week was 45,000 uh, um, near historic, actually, it is basically near uh, historical lows for this week. Back in 2015 and 16, that number was 76,000. You know, uh, 2019, 20, that was 60, 65,000. So we're just getting to these lower and lower and lower levels. And it kind of makes sense because if people are living in their homes longer and then you have a rate increase on them, they don't sell their homes to be homeless, right? They sell their product and they can buy another homes, which means that inventory is a wash, right? That home gets sold, they buy another one. So you don't get really scalable inventory. That's why I like I like using those four decade inventory charts uh, uh, in my work. So people can understand that if you just took 2006 and 2011 out of the equation, inventory channels look pretty stable. Um, inventory in 2000 was 2 million. It actually rose all the way to 2.5 million in, in 2005. And my argument back then is that we had exotic loan debt structures that were facilitating people to move, right? They didn't care where rates were because you were the, 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 the product itself allowed you to move. We don't have that anymore. So in a sense, you have to take the 2000 to 2005 inventory with a little bit of grain of salt. Uh, and now you just have traditional 30-year fix, basic, boring, vanilla lending standards, so that person who lists that home, unless they're a distressed seller, they are legit. They're probably doing really good financially, especially in this marketplace to buy a home. And, and then everybody else is just staying at bay because, you know, the, the best hedge an American family has against inflation is their 30-year mortgage, right? Your mortgage payment, your house cost stays the same, but your wages increase more during an inflationary period. So on top of everything else that the homeowner had looking good, now their wages go even more. They refinance. Their total housing cost to their total wages at their age right now is so low that they're being shielded to a degree with this volatility and inflation and rates. Uh, they don't have the issues that, let's say, a first-time homebuyer or a renter would have with inflationary problems and mortgage rate uh, increases. Yeah, you you make such a great point about the difference between the last or the the huge housing great recession of 2008. I think you say it started in 2007 or 2006. Yes, credit credit started deteriorating in 2005, 6, 7, 8 
then the job loss recession happened, you know, so a lot that that credit chart that I that I use so famously, it actually shows that we had all this credit stress and housing before like four years before the recession actually happened. And then on top of all that, the recession just made it worse. Yeah. So there's so many people today that are in great fear of a, a housing collapse or hoping for that because they want to be able to buy. And what what you just said is the big difference. First of all, I was a mortgage broker back then. And of course, um, they were exotic loans, meaning that interest rate didn't matter because you didn't have to make the whole payment. <laughs> Those NAGAM loans, you only had to make, a, a, you know, qualify for a t- at a teaser rate. So big difference there. And then the inventory levels, I think we're three times higher then. Yeah. Uh, in 2005, the active listings were 2.5 million. And today it's 980,000. This is the NAR data. And then that 2.5 million spiked up to over 4 million in 2007. So here, sales are basically at 2007 levels. And there's a 3 million inventory gap between that period in time to now. So Nobody was ever going to believe me that this this was going to occur until they saw sales collapse, because now they can't. You know, at first it was well, nobody listed their homes because of COVID. It will happen in twenty twenty one. Well, forbearance is going to happen. All these people are going to now home sales are collapsing. Now they're going to list their never occurred. In fact, the opposite happened. New listings they actually declined to all time lows during the biggest uh, uh, portion of the rate increase. So it's just a different market. I I think if just People didn't look at housing as, in a sense, how people would trade stocks. You know, you like my thing is that a lot of stock traders are really bad on housing economics because they say, well, everyone's going to rush to sell to get out to take their equity. And I go, and do what? Right. They still need a place to live. Where, where are they Where are they going to go? You and, and, and then you almost have to get like into a primal stage to like, if you are a father looking at your kid and you say, Son, we're going to sell our house and we're going to find somewhere else to live. But dad, I go to school here. You have your job. What are you doing? I we we have to no, dad. You're not you're not that soft. Don't worry about it. So people just don't operate that way when they're homeowners. Stock traders do this all the time because they're always on leverage. So they don't understand homeowners aren't on leverage anymore. Their nested equities are high. Their fixed payments are. They don't have the stress that leveraged sectors of our economy would have. So they don't behave in that sense, uh, how a leverage sector. So that to me explains why we had the biggest collapse in sales, but inventory is near all-time lows. I think the low level was like 850,000 or 860,000. We got to 980. Uh, the weekly inventory has been declining pretty much every week this year uh, outside of one week that would have like a thousand uh, gains. So we're just in a different type of market. I think it all revolves around credit channels and those two laws in 2005 and 2010 changed everything. And this is the first really good test, you know, COVID, forbearance, the big collapse in sales and homeowners just sitting there like, what, what do you guys think we're going to do? <laughs> well, what, what, what do you want us to do? You want us to sell our house to move where? You know, we're good here. And uh, that hopefully explains why inventory got near all-time lows again this year. It's an incredibly helpful explanation. It just seems like, there's this large long-term affordability issue. And I'm just curious how, if at all, do you see this improving? Because right now we're just seeing the situation where inventory is stuck really low. Is this just the new normal for the inventory data or what do you expect to happen? You know, I always look at people's affordability indexes to see, you know, when do they think things are going to break? For me, it was very simple. A lot of my work is, you know, years 2020 to 2024 was going to be different than what we saw from 2008 to 2019. However, this period of time, you have to worry about home prices escalating out of control. And the, the easiest way for me to say it is that if demand stayed on trend, but inventory broke to all-time lows when population is at all-time highs, that is an inflationary period. That is a supply-driven inflationary period. So housing broke out before COVID even hit us. But if you look at 2020 existing home sales, it was only 130,000 more than 2017 levels. 
if I average 2020 to 2021, because, you know, you can make a case that, you know, we we're just doing some makeup demand and it fell to 2021, it's still only 350 to 375,000 more than 2017 levels. So why didn't we see the housing inflation issues then? It's because inventory broke to all-time lows when demand was picking up. That is an inflationary period. And for me, it was like, as long as home prices only grew at 23% for five years, 4.6% nominal per year at peak, with wage growth, everything is still intact. That got destroyed in two years. So we're already at 30% home price gains with two years. So for me, the next stage is the 10-year yield has to break about 1.94%. That's 4% plus more. The housing dynamics change. But when that occurred, you're dealing with 30% home price gains in a very short amount of time. So there's your hit to demand. And then also that move up buyer, move down buyer, that person stays in their house. And that's another hit on demand because a inventory should be looked at as demand because those people that list 75 to 82% of the time, they buy another home. So it is a demand hit to us as a country when people don't list their homes uh, as actively as they used to uh, uh, in the past. And now with rates higher, it just doesn't make sense. The affordability doesn't make sense. So we're stuck here until wages come up again, until rates and prices work the work themselves up. But with all that said, 6% mortgage rates stabilized the housing market. In fact, prices were firming up uh, early in the year just because active listings are so low. Uh, uh, and, uh, it's just, it, it's an abnormal market because we've never had this low of an inventory. We never had this biggest, uh, or the, this much home price growth in such a short amount of time, and then have the biggest mortgage rate spike in history, you know, all together, the market is trying to figure itself out. Uh, but below 6%, I, 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 like for myself, I thought if I believed early on that mortgage rates would get below 5.75 and head to 5%, I'd have a much positive uh, a, a take on housing because I think those people, there's so many people that want to buy homes, they're ready to go, but they just need that lower rate that because inventory levels are so low, it would stabilize everything. We saw just a glimpse of that uh, uh, um, when rates fell to 6%. And again, we see these headline mortgage rates. Rates are actually even lower than that. The builders are buying down seller concessions. So people are getting lower rates than that. And that stabilized things, but then bam, rates just shot up uh, at a very quick time. So that's the marketplace that can't find any stabilization. And it wasn't like this in a previous expansion. Previous expansion rates, maybe half a percent, uh, 75 basis points, something like that, a slow move throughout the year. Here, we're just up and down like crazy. And <laughs> Which sellers just, you know, don't feel comfortable listing their homes, thinking, okay, 6%, 5.7%, and all of a sudden, two, three weeks later, 7%. You know, in some cases, they couldn't even afford a house. So I think things will change when the market calms itself down. And then you can get some kind of footing in housing. When do you see the market calming down? Eventually, when jobless claims for me, my I'm not a Fed pivot person, but when jobless claims rise to 323,000, the bond market will start to go lower. The Fed at that point won't need to worry about the growth rate of inflation because the labor market is turning on them. The spreads would get better. And here's the thing. Housing's disproportionately impacted positive with lower rates. You know, last year we had 4 million jobs created, but higher rates disproportionately in a negative fashion impacted uh, housing because uh, the rate is the primary driver here. So in that context, you'd have a lower rate for a longer period of time. Uh, for me, it's just the growth rate of inflation is eventually going to fall uh, 12 months from now, even more as rent inflation, the growth rate cools down. But when the labor market breaks, there'll be more stability in that the Fed's verbal talk to the to everyone will be uh, more accommodative than, than negative. That gives you at least a stabilization period of time, not this, you know, we're going to take off again because I, I, I'm a... I fundamentally do not believe we have like the 1970s entrenched inflation. Like if you're a 1970s entrenched inflation, you are a housing boom person because rent inflation took off in the 1970s. Home sales took off from 2 million to 4 million. 
back then. That'd be like us going from five million to ten million right now. So we don't have that kind of uh, labor force dynamics like we did in the seventies for that kind of inflation. But uh, uh, here, if the economy cools down, growth rate inflation cools down, you get more stability with lower rates, and then you could get down to that five percent level. Uh, uh, and the spreads get better, and you don't have to worry about bond yields shooting back up again. We're not there yet. Yeah, we're we're not there yet. You're not even close with the January employment report being so robust. So, do you, when do you think it would start to fizzle out, and the economy would actually slow down, and we would see the job losses that the Fed wants? Here's here's the thing: the my six recession red flags went up on August fifth. The last time that happened was at the uh, end of 2006, and that was when credit was deteriorating. The labor force dynamics are so much different now. Um, so jobless claims just rising. The growth rate of wage growth is already cooling down. So the we're gonna we're gonna eventually see the impact of all these rate hikes. It takes about like 12 to 24 months lag time. Uh, you'll see it in credit. Uh, defaults, auto loans, consumer loans, they're starting to pick up. But over the next 12 months, things should cool down. I mean, the Federal Reserve's own forecast is actually for a recession later on this year, just because the unemployment rate gets up higher. The economy itself is is good in the sense that homeowners, right, the majority of consumption or household homeowners, their balance sheets look really good. Renters on the other side don't have some of those structural uh, um protections that homeowners have. But over the next 12 months, the deterioration in credit should cool down the jobless claims data. And when that starts to go, the bond market will get ahead of the Fed. The Fed will be late to the game as they always are. But uh, that the jobless claims data to me is the most important data we have in America right now. And 323,000 is not very big in the historical sense, but if we're headed that way, that means the labor market is deteriorating. We're still under 200,000. So we're not there yet, but that's that's what I'm keeping a track of, especially over the next 12 months. Logan, just so I can make sure I'm following and everyone else is uh, following this, I just correct me if my summary is wrong here. So you're saying that over the course of the next 12 months, you think that the cumulative effect of Fed rate hikes are going to put some downward pressure on the labor market. We're going to start to see unemployment claims, initial jobless claims start to tick up. And that will put downward pressure on bond yields, right? Because that will indicate a recession is probably coming. Um, and you, like you said, bond yields and bond investors are ahead of the Fed. And so that could bring down mortgage rates even before the Fed potentially cuts the federal funds rate. Is that right? Yes, the bond market is bigger, faster, smarter than the <laughs> Reserve. So that's how it works. They've tried to they try to get ahead of the Fed twice. I just don't think the labor market is as bad as some people think. That's why my forecast for twenty twenty three was you know four and a quarter on the ten year yield high, the seven and a quarter mortgage rates, and three point two one. Eventually, over time, the growth rate of inflation, just because so much of inflation is rent inflation. CPI inflation lags about 12 months, but the growth rate is just cooling down just because it was such a high extreme level. So that in itself will bring the growth rate of inflation to where the Fed kind of wants to be somewhat in a better spot at the end of this year. Their own forecasts even talk about it. It's just that's going to happen toward the end of this year. It's going to be more apparent to everyone else. Um, and then if the labor market starts to soften up, that's what the Federal Reserve wants because they believe that a tighter labor market, wage growth gets out of hand. Well, wage growth is already cooling down with a tighter labor market. So if any kind of loosening or, or any kind of tightening in the in the monetary affects the jobs data, then the Fed's doing what they what they primarily want. They want wage growth to cool down. They want the labor supply to be bigger, bigger. So then wage growth goes down, less inflationary pressures. And then they could, you know, eventually the bond market will do most of their work for them. And then they could sit there and debate what their uh, Fed rate cut or, or, or rate stance is. But to me, the bond market matters more than the Federal Reserve. And we, we saw that just last year when in October, October 27th, I wrote an article for Housing Wire, the case for lower mortgage rates. Mortgage rates, are, I mean, the 10-year-old was spiking, the dollar was getting strong. 
the UK was going to use as pension funds, you know, Japan needed a new regime. Usually in a short-term period, that's kind of a short-term top. Bond yields fell, it stabilized housing. But if you actually had weakening labor data, bond yields will get well ahead of that. And that's what historically they have done. Uh, not something I thought would happen early in this year, but later on, uh, especially with the growth rate of inflation falling, things should look different. What's a little bit confusing is if there's such low inventory in housing and it's so unaffordable, but you have this large population looking for a place to live and forming households, you would think that rent growth would continue to rise. And that's what a lot of real real estate investors are counting on is, wow, if people can't afford to buy a home, they're going to rent. There's going to be all this demand for rent and rents will go up. But Dave just came out with a report saying that's not the case. <laughs> so so what's going on there? Is there not is, is there too much inventory in rental housing or people are just staying with mom and dad and, and not, not forming households? The history of rent inflation rarely goes negative post-World War II. Um, if you actually look at shelter CPI, the only time in, in recent history that it went negative year over year was 2010 for like two months. That was the housing crash. Yeah, by like 2%, right? It was like nothing. Yeah, so it was just two months. What occurred over the last two years is that the growth rate of rents were so extreme that they can't sustain itself. So that's what people are talking about. I think there's a confusion. The growth rate cooling down from 15% to 3% doesn't mean rents are going negative in a big fashion. It's just that the growth rate cools down. And then you have a lot of apartments that are under construction that'll come online too. So you put those two together, the growth rate of rents falling down to let's say 2 to 3% growth instead of 15 to 18%, that really impacts the inflation data. Uh, uh, so I think there's, there's, there's a... There's an overreaction into the rental deflation story um, because the history of rents is you don't, the reason why rents don't go negative is because most people are working, right? But because of the violent swings to the upside, you get these violent swings to the downside. And this is the history of global pandemics. This actually happened in 1918, you know, with the Spanish flu. We had this big major rent uh, increase and then the rental deflation period and the, the history of pandemics are like this as well. So we're just in the getting back to normal. And if you look at the CPI shelter inflation data, post-1980 was pretty stable. You know, the three times it bursted up was in the 1970s, right? And that's what we had a labor force de uh, demographic push. We didn't have enough homes uh, for uh, uh, renting and rent just took off all the time. So oddly enough, the people that are Big inflationary people, in theory, would have to be major housing booms uh, people. And we just don't have that kind of labor force dynamics like we did back in the 70s. So the growth rate cooling down is not like a major rental deflation. There's going to be some cities that go negative. We, we've seen this from time to time. Certain cities actually show negative year-over-year -year data, and then they stabilize out. That's where... That's what I, I was thinking was going to happen back in September when I went out to CBC and said, hey, listen... CPI shelter is going to lag all year long, but it'll be evident to everybody in America by January February that the growth rate is just cooling down. So growth rate cooling down and negative are two different things entirely. Yeah, just to so everyone knows, I was citing, uh, I think on Instagram, Kathy, you're probably talking about uh, an apartment list report. It was covered in the Wall Street Journal. They were specifically talking about multifamily and new leases. And there are, Logan, you I'm sure could expand on this, but there are a lot of different ways you can measure rent. And so this is basically not factoring in people who are renewing their lease. It's basically people in large metro areas who are looking for a new lease in a multifamily unit. And they were showing that there was actually real loss, very minor, you know, one or two percentage points um, in, in the median rent price. But I think when you look at the holistic sense of uh, all rent, to your point, you factor in single family homes, renewals, all those things, you're probably not seeing the same thing. One of my favorite charts I like to show with rent is the, you know, post-World War year-over-year rents and the 70s was extremely high. We had three times the rent inflation took off. Here, we're just going to have like one pandemic boom of rent inflation, and then it goes back to what it was post-1981. Very stable. Growth rate. Initial, yeah. yeah. Just that just that initial boom we would see in pandemics, they all tend to fall down. 
eventually. We see this on a lot of uh, uh, pandemic charts. You see this big spike up and then, you know, the big, and it gets back to normal because the only reason it doesn't go back to normal is that either demand is booming out of control, like you labor force growth somehow just took off again. People just sprouted out of somewhere when they need, uh, they need uh, homes and everything else, or the supply is still so low. So it's a balancing act that that, ha- that happens with after the pandemic. So uh, it was a big chalky point in mind last year, but it, you know, again, 12 months down the line from October, you know, it'll be more apparent to everybody and they just, things just get back to normal. And we haven't had normal in a very long time, so it's, it's going to be weird to people. Yeah. But that first move up and that first move down is going to be wild. And then it's just going to get back to how things used to be, uh, not only here in America, but around the world. But uh, uh, that's when you have an event like COVID in a globalized world, things just don't work normal right away. And then uh, that's the history of pandemics going back 700 years, right? You have that initial inflationary burst. Then you have that disinflationary, and then you find that normal trend that was, you know, pre pre pandemic, and we're just in that downward uh, uh, trend right now for some of the data. I mean, shipping costs from you know China to Port of at Long Beach went from two thousand to like eighteen thousand. Now it's back to two thousand. So these these charts look very familiar. If you look at you know other pandemics in, in time. Kathy hit on something I wanted to ask about, which is about household formation, which is key to demand. You you write a lot about demographic demand and millennials, uh, you know, hitting, you know, the largest generation in the U.S. hitting their sort of peak home buying age. But we're in this era where housing and rent are extremely unaffordable by historical standards. And I'm just curious if that you think that will lead to a slowdown in housing formation, at least in the short term. Well, part of the formation that we saw during COVID um, work from home. I mean, the biggest variable change in housing economics that I'll ever see in my life. I mean, literally you move and you don't have to change your job. Um, That was not something any of us had to deal with before. Uh, If that slows down, naturally the household formation slows down in terms of uh, a new household being created. But also when rent inflation gets too too big, you have people getting roommates again. Um, so we had a we had a brief period of time where uh, people were creating more households than maybe would have been anticipated, and that is retracing itself back. Uh, uh, and then on top of all that, you're dealing with massive inflation uh, on the home buying side and home renting side. So there's going to be households that just simply don't get formed that would have been formed in that sense. That's where the affordability issue comes into place. So Logan, you're you're really tapped into the credit markets, uh, having been, well, being at Housing Wire. And what about what's happening in the commercial world? Because we hear about this commercial real estate apocalypse coming and all these loans coming due and people won't be able to refinance. Are you concerned? You're going to see... Um, companies default on some of their some of their products. And I think one of the things that I, I've realized that a lot of people just assume a lot of these commercial buildings could be put into housing. And uh, a lot of these commercial buildings cannot retrofit themselves to housing. So I think a lot of people thought, well, the commercial industry can be saved if they make those apartments or anything. There's only so little that can be done in there. So eventually in time, Either they default or they negotiate with their uh, note holder. So I don't, I, it, it's not a promising look for certain people. I know PIMCO just uh, defaulted on one of theirs, but uh, people tell me, well, aren't you concerned about the consumer? What does that have to do with the consumer? <laughs> it has to do with the actual um, uh, uh, people that work for the company. But if you're telling me, well, a consumer is the working from home and not their office, what does that mean? Less driving. What does that mean? More money in the bank, right? So uh, in the consumption set for the consumer, it's fine. Remember, we are a consumer-based economy. It's how much we spend as a consumer. It's not, in a sense, the commercial industry. Uh, um, The property taxes that states and cities get, yes, that'll that'll be an issue. The companies themselves, the people that work there, but in the sense of higher mortgage rates or higher uh, short-term rates is more detrimental in, 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 in real estate than what the commercial industry is to the general economy. And that's 
shows you the economy still expanding while all this has been here for for 24 months now. Uh, we've been talking about when is the commercial boom and you're going to see an impact there. But it also shows that the reason that's happening is a lot of people are working from home and they get to save that money for uh, gas and that's more disposable income. That's why consumption is still still solid still. So there's a pro and there is there is a negative effect to that. But as of right now, there's a bigger pro case to be made uh, with that because of all those people uh, saving money on driving than the commercial industry defaulting and, and, and credit risks spreading to banks. Uh, eventually, you'll see more and more defaults. But as of right now, the consumer balance sheet is front and line key uh, to the U.S. economy. And that still is holding up very well. We're seeing some deterioration on the auto loan side from the subprime market, which is traditionally the case. And then whenever you have a sector in a recession, such as housing, you see deterioration in, in, in that. But in, in general terms, consumption is just holding up. Balance sheets are looking good, especially for homeowners. So uh, they're not effective as much with higher long-term rates or higher short-term rates because the biggest uh, 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 debt cost they have has been fixed. It's been fixed for a very long time and it's just gotten cheaper for them. And were you referring to office when you say that? Just a general office, yeah. General office, but not multifamily or storage or other not, commercial not, real not in that, Not in that sense. Uh, um, I know there's a lot of short-term loans that are given in the multifamily industry and, and then maybe two years out if, if, they, if the numbers don't work. But um, the reason why we're still consuming, the economy is still in the expansion mode, is that the household balance sheets in America... If you look at them on paper, they, they just look good. And we still have almost a trillion dollars in excess savings still from from COVID. So uh, eventually that wears off. Net interest costs are rising for households. So uh, over time, that does impact demand enough to bring sales downs where people have to be let go. We're just not there yet uh, uh, for the U.S. economy. So it sounds like, Logan, in general, you think that in the rest of this year, maybe we're looking at more of the same, a lot of volatility with mortgage rates. Um, is that right? If mortgage rates were, if I really believe that rates could get below 5.75%, everybody would change their housing takes because uh, it's the duration of rates going lower and staying lower and then everyone's comfortable. And because sale levels are so, I always tell people we are at, we, this is the lowest bar. Well, this, I mean, it's such a low bar. We could all trip over it. I mean, monthly sales getting to 4 million post-1996. There was COVID, of course. That was just, nobody was doing anything. 2008, you know, and during that phrase, when the credit deteriorated, we got below 4 million. It's really rare to be at these levels or go lower than these levels. So the bar is really low. And we just saw what happened. The market stabilized from just 737 to 6%. So if you could go below that, I all my housing thing changes, but... Early on in the year, I'm just not there until the labor market breaks. The labor market breaks, then it becomes, in a sense, a net positive for housing because rates fall. And the reason it's net positive is majority of people are always working, especially in a uh, even in a recession, and especially home buyers and home sellers, uh, uh, because there's no credit risk like we saw from you know 2002 to 2008. They get the benefits of lower rates. Uh, and they and then homebuyers get the disadvantage of higher rates, even when the economy is expanding. So that my whole housing mind changes, but it needs jobless claims to rise and the growth rate of inflation to fall. That it'll be more evident uh, toward the end of the year. And what do you think that means for prices on a national level? So 2023 is the first time I forecasted price declines since going back to 2011 and 2012. But it was also based on mortgage rates needing to be above 5.875. Uh, so my, I have a rate target because it's my affordability index that goes all the way back to 2013. And it was a big talking point of mine in uh, uh, 2019. The products that uh, that are available, the homes available for sale, when rates are above 5.875, especially towards seven, it just costs more, right? So some of the sellers have to just bring their prices down. It's not like an epic collapse or anything. And pricing has actually been firm so far this year uh, when rates went lower. So when rates got to 5.99%, mortgage rates were actually lower than that just because of the buy-downs and a seller concession. So that would have you know negated my call in a sense. But now that we're back up here, 
uh, it, it, it's it's that's the portion to where the homes that are available, even though inventory is low, to sell product, uh, you have to be uh, uh, willing to cut prices. The builders do this. The builders are very efficient. The builders sell their homes like a commodity. So they don't have any shelter or worry or anything. They cut prices, they cut rates. New home sales just beat, uh, you know, it's uh, the highest in many months. Home sellers are just different, right? They're, you know, they, they, they're more stingy and sometimes things take longer, but it's a rate story and an affordability story. It's not a supply story. I, like, I cannot with a conscious tell people there's a supply story. It's we're at all time lows, basically. So it's not that. It's just the affordability issue. And it really depends on the rate. So if rates went below 5.875 or, or headed toward 5%, I'd have a much different take on housing. It's just I'm not there with the economy yet. Uh, but if jobless claims rise, and especially toward the second, you could see the rate situation getting better, but uh, not early on. All right. Well, Logan, thank you. This has been super helpful. Are there any other last parting thoughts you think our audience should know? Um, the history of inventory bottoming out later is a post 2020, uh, phenomenon. Uh, and we should be getting the seasonal increase in inventory soon. Uh, it's just not normal to have it in March and April, like we've seen, uh, but it should be there. And the bidding wars that you're hearing, especially like in the Northeast, there are parts of the U S that are basically at all-time lows or in some cases even lower. And it's just a product issue, right? So sometimes people think, well, the housing market's hot because I have 25 people coming to it because there's only three homes in the neighborhood, right? So <laughs> millions and millions of people buy homes every single year. It's just that the lack of listings uh, right now with rates being high might make it seem that the housing market is coming back in a sense, but you can see it in the purchase application demand. We're just not there. Um, but the early on in the years, especially January, February, uh, and March, we just don't have that seasonal growth in listings just to balance out some of the market. So be careful of the early year talking points. You could, we've seen this now the third year in a row where seasonal demand or seasonal fall in inventory, we get a little bit of increase toward the end of the year and it makes it seem like things are hotter right now, but it's just a supply issue. And until we get back to like 1.52 to 1.93 million, total active listings. Uh, uh, I would be perfectly happy with that. But now that the days on market are above 30 days, the first time really post COVID, that is the closest thing we've had to a normal housing market. Um, for some perspective, it was like 101 days back in 2011 uh, when demand was down. Now it's 30 days with 2007 sales levels, but it's just the active listings are so slow. So it has always been a supply story with housing. Um, and it's still a supply story. And again, a traditional seller is a traditional buyer. If they don't list, that's a negative for demand and a negative for inventory. Which explains why new home sales were up last month. Builders can be a little more flexible, a little more reasonable. They're paying down points to to get the rate down, and hopefully they'll do more of that. I I, I, I wrote this article recently. I said the home builders are so lucky. Back in 2007, they had 4 million active listings to deal with, right? You know, when demand was down here, their balance sheets are great. There's not that much competition and they'll, they'll pay down points. They'll get, they'll get people what they want to because they want to move product. Like a lot of people, the, they see these charts and they go, it's just, most homes under construction, inventory is going to blow up. We have 68,000 new homes available for sale. That's it. Wow. You know, the peak of the housing bubble crash was 200,000. That was it. So I don't think people understand how the builders work. They don't flood the market with homes. They build a home in a timeline where they think they could sell. They deal with the cancellation rates. They kind of, but they don't push those homes in the marketplace. So uh, they have more homes that are, have, are under construction that haven't even started yet than the active listings that they have. So they're, don't look for the builders to give you a lot of inventory. They, they won't, you know, that's just the, that their business model is different. It has to come from traditional sellers. And if new listings data is not growing, we're, we're kind of stuck here. And that's, that's always been one of the bigger fears about this period. Do we get stuck? Nobody wants to sell, nobody wants to buy, affordability issues. So we have to work our way back to normal. And the one positive thing is that the days on market is, above 30 days. I actually officially took off my savagely unhealthy housing market theme 
uh, that I had from song from last February, just because that, because now it's just like, oh, that's something normal. Your home doesn't fly like this. Everybody has to bid against each other. So there's parts of the U.S. that still has to deal with that just because their listings are so low. But on a national basis, it is a good thing that we're above 30 days. All right. Well, Logan, this has been a masterclass. Thank you so much for for helping us understand what's going on. This is really incredibly helpful understanding some of the real lead indicators and things that are driving some of the behavior that we're seeing in the market. So thank you. If people want to follow your work, like I know Kathy and I do religiously, where can they do that? Housing Wire. Um, we, have a, we have a new thing called the Housing Wire uh, Tracker, and it, it's the freshest up-to-date weekly inventory data. Look at the bond market, purchase applications, economic data to give people a kind of a forward-looking uh, 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 look at the housing market before the kind of conventional data comes in. Uh, uh, especially on the inventory side, we have access to weekly inventory at every zip code in America. So uh, we try to give people a heads up on what we see that will show up in the data lines maybe a month or two out. Um, I didn't put this together that you'd be on the show, but I was playing around with that today. I just noticed it for the first time. It's really, it's very cool for for nerds like us. So yeah, definitely check that out on Housing Market. It's just housingwire.com slash housing dash market. And you can see all that. Logan, thanks again. It's always fun to have you. Hopefully we'll have you back uh, when more crazy stuff happens so you can explain it to us. Definitely. Sounds good. Kathy, what do you think? I think this is one of those shows I'm going to be listening to two or three times to absorb it all. He's just such a wealth of information. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, he is someone I've always read and listened to, and I think he's just got such a good, unbiased, data-driven, numbers-driven understanding of the housing market that really surpasses pretty much anyone I know. Yeah, and it's usually counterintuitive or opposite of what you're seeing in the headlines. Um, but it, for me, at least it gives me something to focus on. Like like you said, just focus on um, n- not so much the unemployment rate, but the jo- you know jobless claims. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really think that this backs up a lot of the things we've been saying and thinking about that, you know, there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of data to be following, but... What the Federal Reserve is looking at with bond markets, which, again, just as a reminder, mortgage rates track bond yields, not the federal funds rate. What these people are looking for is is at the labor market. And in January, we saw this huge, pretty unexpected jobs report that showed strong hiring. And that's why rates jump back up. They went back up from about 6% to now to about 7%. And so Logan's point that until the labor market quote unquote breaks, basically meaning it's not running so red hot that workers have this tremendous wage power over corporations and, and their employers, that things are not going to stabilize. So that's definitely something we look at, but something you can all start to check on here. He gave a very specific number. I think it was 323 thousand or something per week. Um, And just for for reference, for anyone who's listening to this, we're at about 192,000. So there's there's a long way to go. um, But there most people believe that it will head towards that number by the end of the year. Which again, it's like living in opposite world. Like we, we don't really want to see people lose jobs. Uh, right. um, unfortunately, that's what it's going to take to uh, to get the Fed to slow slow down their rate hikes. Well, something interesting is that like jobless claims could almost go up without people staying unemployed long term, because what Logan's talking about is known as initial jobless claims, which is basically when people get laid off or fired, they can file for these benefits, but they might be off it the next week. You don't really know. So there's two different types of unemployment data you can look at. You can look at uh, sort of these consistent, enduring jobless claims or ongoing, it's called uh, jobless claims. But since right now, there's still you know 10 million job openings in the United States, there is a scenario where layoffs um, happen, but people quickly find jobs, maybe at a lower paying job. I don't, I don't know if it's exactly one-to-one, but it'll be interesting to see what happens here because even when jobless claims were going up in December, you know, the unemployment rate didn't really move. So something that uh, really defies all logic. And as Kathy said, no one's hoping for people to lose their jobs. We're just trying to explain 
the calculus that the Fed is doing in their head because they have this dual responsibility of fighting inflation and trying to ensure maximum employment. So it's sort of this tightrope that they have to walk. And right now they're favoring, you know, they think the more important issue is to fight inflation rather and acknowledging that that could cost jobs. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, I'm going to go listen to this one again. Very interesting. (laughs) Thank you, Kathy. We appreciate you being here. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time for On the Market. On the Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Research by Pooja Jindal. And a big thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show On the Market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but at the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market. It's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that. Or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.